In this episode of 2000 Books, Harvard Business School lecturer Frank Suspedes teaches us the three key components of strategy that every entrepreneur must apply rigorously in order to save their business. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Frank Suspedes is a senior lecturer at Howard Business School's Entrepreneurial Management Unit. He is the author or co-author of six books, including the one we're talking about today, Aligning Strategy and Sales. Frank, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I want to learn from you, so welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Manny. Thank you. Um, first off, let's talk about the book. Why should an ambitious entrepreneur read this book? Well, I mean, a couple of reasons. Uh, let me cite some uh, data, uh, and the data I'm going to cite about companies in general are especially true uh, with startups. Linking strategy with sales is by far the biggest part of implementation for companies. Just a couple of uh, data points that put this in perspective. U.S. companies spend annually, every year, about $900 billion on sales. And by sales, I mean what they pay their salespeople, travel and entertainment, etc. Now, to put that in perspective, that's more than three times what U.S. companies spend annually on all their media advertising, you know, Super Bowl ads, everything. It's more than 20 times what they spend on all their digital media. And it's more than 50 times what they currently spend on social media. And the proportions are even bigger for a startup. Uh, most startups, once you get beyond product development, by far the biggest expense item is sales. So, uh, you know, when I see numbers like that, I always think about uh, the comment attributed to Mark Twain. If you're going to put a lot of eggs in one basket, keep your eye on that basket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And uh, a very interesting start there. The, for an established company, you know, your sales expense is almost 50 times bigger than the social media expense. Um, I guess for a startup or early early growth phase company, that number might be a little different. But uh, just a realization that as even as we grow, even as we get bigger, uh, the sales is going to be a huge chunk of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and and for startups, you know, very often the product development uh, by the time they're uh, trying to get customers is a sunk cost. So the SG&A is by far the biggest expense. And again, without customers, without customer acquisition, you don't have a business. Uh, so again, this is this is a very very important basic issue in business. Got it. And so let's, uh, Frank, before we get into the nitty gritty details of the book, I want our listeners to kind of get to know you. So tell us your personal story and what led you to writing this book. Well, I mean, my story is reasonably uh, straightforward. I was a uh, professor uh, at Harvard Business School for about 11 years. And uh, during that period of time, my research always focused on the go to market aspects of businesses, sales, distribution channels, and so forth. Uh, Then um, I left uh, academia. I stumbled into a business. 
I ran that business for 12 years and just got lucky. I mean, I could spin this a different way, Manny, but I got lucky, uh, sold the business at exactly the right time. But one of the things that really comes home to you when you run a business and have to meet payroll is the importance of sales. Then after I sold the business, Harvard called me back up, said, how'd you like to come back and teach? And I was delighted to do that. It's a lot more fun to be a professor after you've made money. Uh, And uh, when I looked around to see what literature there is, I found two things were true. One is the world does not need another book about strategy. There's a lot of them. And the world does not need another book about selling methodologies. But there's nothing that links the two. So that's really what brought me uh, to this particular topic and to this book. Right. And so now let's get into the book. I give our listeners maybe a 10,000 feet overview of the book, kind of the lay of the land of the book. Well, the basic idea uh, is this. Uh, In any business, value is created or destroyed in the marketplace with customers. That's just the basic reality. And the market includes the industry that you compete in, the customer segments where you choose to play and not play, very important issue for entrepreneurs. And then as a result, the buying process at those customers that where you do choose to sell and service. Those are the factors that it should inform the strategy of a company and the required sales tasks. And by sales tasks, I mean what it is you need to be good at if you're going to sell and deliver value for your company's products, not those of another company. Then if you do understand the sales task, the basic issue is actually aligning selling behaviors with those tasks. And ultimately, any organization, whether it's a big corporation or a startup, basically has three levers available to them to do that. The first and most important, as always in business, is people. Who you hire, what they know, how you do or don't develop their skills. The second is what I call the control systems, the performance management practices, including sales compensation, performance reviews, what are the metrics we use to measure effectiveness. And the third is what I call the sales environment the context in which these sales initiatives get developed and executed, how communication works, for example, between product and sales, and if the uh, entrepreneur has reached this stage, who you hire as a sales manager, not just a salesperson, as you grow. That, that in a nutshell, is the, uh, the overview of the book. Mm-hmm. So now let's, let's get into the book. Let's get into the the details of the book. And here we like to focus on three specific ideas. We want to make it such that it's memorable for people so that people remember and we feel three is a good number. So let's start from the top. What are, you know, what's the most important idea to start off the book? Well, probably the number one is being clear about strategy itself. I mean, what I'm about to say you know, may sound obvious once I say it, but all I can tell you is that after 30 years of working with a lot of startups, a lot of venture capital firms, and a lot of corporations, uh, even the smartest people need reminding about this. It is very, very difficult to achieve sustained good things in business without a strategy. 
Now, there is such a thing as luck. I think I got lucky in business, but I think as an entrepreneur, it's a tough thing to count on luck. So you've got to be purposeful about strategy, and you have to understand what strategy is and is not. Too many people, especially passionate founders, confuse strategy with other important things like vision and values and aspiration. Those are important things, but they are not a strategy. A strategy is fundamentally a set of choices about where to play, where not to play, how to win in those areas that we do choose to play in. And strategy is fundamentally about the future, not the past. In business, there's very little profit margin in celebrating the good old days. Very few people have ever made money in business, you know, just waxing nostalgic about the good old days. It's about how do we get from here to there and who are the customers that we're going to focus on in order to do that. And again, vision, values, aspiration, you know, all the stuff you hear on TED Talks these days, those are not irrelevant but never, ever confuse them with a strategy. So that would be the first uh, of the uh, key ideas. So let's let's talk about strategy a little bit, because what you said here is really important. I think our listeners need to re-listen to that and, and maybe understand that a little more. You said strategy is deciding where you're going to play, where you're not going to play, and how you're going to win in that market space. So, I mean, those are key components of outlining um, the business itself in some ways. Like, if you are not clear on where you're going to play, as in who your customers are and who not, who your customers are not, you're going to end up selling or you're going to end up spraying your effort all over the place. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is let's let's really drill down why it's really important to get strategy or to have clarity on strategy. Yep. Uh, let's do two things. One is why it's important and what are the things that lead both entrepreneurs and established companies to often um, uh, spray themselves all over, to use your metaphor. It's important for a couple of reasons. One is, as I said earlier, sales tasks, the most important thing to understand about selling is that effective selling is always more about the buyer than it is about the seller. And as a result, you always begin by first understanding who your buyer is, who they're not, where our value proposition fits those buyers, where it doesn't. And very important, especially for startups, how they buy. Now, those are all decisions about where to play and where not to play. Now, on the other side, if you ask yourself, well, how come uh, entrepreneurs and uh, established companies don't stick with this? I think the reasons fundamentally uh, for established companies, especially public companies, have to do with growth. They've got to meet with the investors every three months. And uh, the investors, again, because business is about going forward, not looking back, the investors don't really care that much about how you made money in the past. They want to know how you expect to uh, make money in the future. So that established corporations always have an incentive to try to do other things to grow, especially as their market matures. And very often they get involved in lots and lots and lots of things that, frankly, they provide no differentiated value for. With startups, it's a similar sort of thing. 
they're going through a process of customer discovery, and it is a process. It is a process of trial and error. And because cash is king in any startup, there's always an incentive there to make the sale, any sale. But the reality, especially uh, in a uh, young company, is that product development, delivery, so many other aspects of the startup's business model are determined by whom we sell to. And if we're not selling to folks that make sense for us, ultimately we're going to screw up that business model. And it always happens sooner than the entrepreneur thinks. Hmm. Very interesting. We're going to end up screwing up this model if we don't focus our energies. And it, it, I mean, I, I guess a, a question that um, that may or may not be pertinent here, but I want to ask is, is it okay to start, you know, with a specific? Is it okay? So let me ask you a different in a different way. Is it better to be focused and get the customer segment wrong? rather than to be all over the place and just keep, you know, just focus on ev- or spray yourself in every which direction? Given a choice, you know, I'll, uh, I'll vote for focus most of the time. But let, let's step back because I think this is an important element that um, the research about this topic um, uh, indicates. And uh, I think it's important, especially for entrepreneurs, Uh, to be knowledgeable about some of this research. One of the ways you achieve competitive advantage as an entrepreneur is not simply to reinvent the wheel. And frankly, too many entrepreneurs do that. You know, I, I, I sort of read the blogs and other things coming out of Silicon Valley these days about sales. And, you know, the vast majority of them are reinventing the wheel. And then the author says, you know, with a sort of uh, apocalyptic tone of voice, guess what? The wheel is round. Uh, I don't think that helps entrepreneurs very much. Of all the different elements in a business, I'm going to use the academic jargon, of all the different elements in the so-called value chain, from sourcing through production to finance to sales to service, the most contextual, the most variable is sales right? Because it depends on who you're selling to, who those buyers are, who they're not, what your strategy is, etc. And yet the interesting thing is that of all the elements in business along the value chain, sales is probably that element that most people generalize about the most, right? Sales is all about relationships. Oh, really? Other elements of business are not. Or, you know, the way to motivate sales is money. Oh, I get it. Other aspects of business we do for the greater good of God and country, not for money. Really, some silly, glib generalizations. So the first part of my answer to your question, Manny, is it depends. It depends on the strategy and the business model. There are are a number of business models, you know, so-called platform businesses are good examples uh, of this. Where, in fact, the, uh, you know, sort of spray and pray approach, you can actually argue that that makes sense for some period of time because it's very cost or low cost, if not costless, to move those people through our sales 
funnel. So really the name of the game there is generate as many leads as possible. We can deal with them through low cost online activities. And you know, if our, uh, if our hit rate is two to 5%, we've got a business, right? Dropbox would be a good example of that. On the other hand, there are many, many other businesses, and this is the majority, especially if you're selling to uh, B2B business customers, you can't do that. In fact, you'll kill yourself if you do that. Your SG&A will kill you. You've got to be very, very purposeful about who you let into the sales funnel and who you don't because it is a long selling cycle and a very expensive allocation of resources to move a prospect through that funnel. So the answer is it depends, but it, it, it doesn't depend simply on arbitrary decisions. It depends in understanding the buyer and the implications for sales. Got it. This is great. And, uh, you know, talking about the difference, uh, about one of the examples, uh, I guess, is uh, Facebook, where they started off by only focusing on Harvard for a bit and then allowing maybe another college for a bit and then staying in the education domain for a while and then opening it to the general public. So they started with a very specific niche. Then they broadened the niche and they broadened the niche, even though there was not a sales process involved per se, but they have customers uh, who they cater to and they kept on broadening that rather than start with a broad market in the first place. Yeah, and 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 I, you know, given my my experience both as an entrepreneur and working with startups, um, you, again, just as a, a a big generalization, I think that approach, you know, start with a particular vertical or some other uh, criterion for niche, makes sense for at least two practical reasons. One is again, we've got to understand the buyer before we know what to do about selling, right? Facebook is now fundamentally an ad company. Um, and secondly, uh, you know, unless you're uh, extraordinarily well-funded, most startups just don't have the cash and other resources to do something besides a very purposeful niche strategy. But again, there are some other businesses that do lend themselves to much more flexibility in um, in the initial customer acquisition efforts. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is great. So now let's move on to the second big idea in the book. What is it going to be, Frank? Well, there's a there's a comment uh, I quoted in the book, and I've been fond of it for years. There's a, a comment in a, a novel by John Le Carre. You know, some of our listeners may be familiar with uh, that novelist. You know, spy novels and so forth. But in one of his novels, one of his characters says, a desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world. And uh, I think that's the kind of saying that should be um, tattooed on a prominent body part <laughs> for everybody in business. And uh, the reason, I think, is, 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 is twofold. One, as I said earlier, value is created or destroyed in the marketplace, It's not created in meetings. It's not created in planning sessions. It's ultimately not created even in product development. It is only created or destroyed in actual interactions with customers. So you've got to keep your eye on that. The second reason why I think getting out of the building, 
A desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. Uh, uh, second reason why I think that's important is, is the following, and this is especially true in technology businesses, but increasingly it's true in most businesses in the 21st century, and that's the fact of market change. It is not the market's responsibility to be nice to your company's strategy or to any company's strategy. The market will do what the market will do for lots of reasons that are fundamentally outside the entrepreneur's control. Competition, regula uh, regulation, macroeconomic issues, right? Uh, think about companies uh, that uh, might have been selling services to the oil and gas companies, you know, in their current downturn. It is the seller's responsibility and the, the entrepreneur's responsibility to understand what's going on in the market and adapt. Now, that may sound unfair, but that is simply the way the world works. And that's why a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. If, if you're not in contact with what's going on out there, and as your company grows, if you don't have processes for staying in contact, uh, you run a very, very big risk. So that's that would be the second issue that I uh, I, I would uh, point to. And and I mean, in the whole meta picture of strategy and sales, and you know, of running the business, seems like this is really like it sits in this sits in the center of all of this because you can't really identify strategy clearly unless you are in touch with your customers. You can't really sell unless you are face-to-face -face or, you know, on a video call with them or something, you know, in some ways communicating with them clearly and regularly. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think there is a substitute for that. Other things can help. You know, right now we're living through a lot of talk about so-called big data and data analytics uh, and that's not just talk. I mean, what is available to companies now uh, for data really is, uh, you know, remarkable when you compare it to as recently as, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago. But again, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. It's very, you know, it's it, data can help, but it can't substitute. Here, here's an anecdote that uh, may, may also make my point. Uh, when I started at Harvard Business School, uh, one of the things, and I'm very grateful to Harvard for this, but, you know, I come out of a Ph.D. program. What do I know about the real world of business? But, but uh, Harvard, unlike a lot of other business schools, required its faculty to go out and write case studies, uh, and, you know, get out from behind the desk. And I'm very, very grateful to that. And especially to uh, a senior professor who said, look, let me give you a tip. When you write a case, before you meet with the CEO or other senior leaders in that company, first go out and travel with some of the salespeople uh, and then meet with the C-suite. And I followed his advice. And what I found most of the time is that by the time I met with the CEO, I could say, you know, I'll bet one of the issues in your company is X, Y, or Z. And typically the CEO would give me a response that said, you know, you're right. I can see why you teach at Harvard. You must be a really bright guy. But the reality is I was doing something, simply traveling with the salespeople and meeting customers that that CEO had not done for five or six or seven or maybe 10 years. So yes, uh, at the end of the day, 
information, uh, data can help, but a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. You need some of that existential contact on an ongoing basis in any business. Yeah, this is fascinating. Now uh, that I remember when I was reading Sam Walton's biography, he said, uh, no matter how big the business gets, you got to keep your ears close to the ground. And there's this uh, famous story of how he, uh, you know, got arrested in Brazil when he was already a billionaire. Uh, he got arrested in Brazil because he was uh, scrambling below the shelves of a supermarket store because he wanted to take some measurements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, another one of my favorite comments, uh, I wrote a book 15, well, now uh, uh, a little bit more than 15 years ago, and um, uh, Walmart was very generous in sharing access. And I always remember well, Sam Walton was still alive, and um, Walmart's famous for their Saturday morning meetings. I don't know if you're familiar with yep. this, but they bring in all the general managers every Saturday and those meetings are sort of a combination of hard-nosed business review and Cirque du Soleil. You know, there's also lots of entertainment. But Walton, who was sly like a fox, would end each meeting by saying the same thing. He would set the bogey, the quota, for the next week, seven days. And at the time, Walmart was growing so fast that that number was literally numbers like four, five, six hundred million dollars in one week. And Walden would always end each meeting by saying, now you remember, if you're going to make those numbers by next Saturday, you're not going to do that hanging around my office because, quote, there ain't many customers at headquarters. You know, that was his version of a desk is a dangerous place. I think it's exactly right. <laughs> Great. Uh, now let's move on to the next big idea in the book. Uh, Frank, uh, tell us about it. Well, uh, you know, the, the third one, I think, would clearly be um, ensuring that whatever you do in sales activities and behaviors, whatever you're doing in selling, actually supports the relevant sales tasks. Uh, and again, this is important for, for a couple of reasons. There's so many glib generalizations about selling. Let me, let me just, uh, yep. I guess, uh, for our listeners' sake, uh, let, me, let me clarify what or let me just put a little more and add a little more to what you just said. What you're saying is we need to align our sales with our strategy. I mean, because these tasks have come from strategy. They've been handed, they've come down from there and now we need to execute and we need to align all of this together. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, this is one of those things where once someone says it, you know, many people say, duh, but, you know, entrepreneurs, companies forget this. There is no such thing as effective selling if it's not connected to your company's goals and strategic direction. Now, it might be good for the salesperson, you know, might be good for their compensation. It might be good psychologically for the founder. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as effective selling if it's not connected to how you expect to grow your business profitably. And this has very actionable implications. What it says is you always begin with the buyer and the buyer's journey. And I want to emphasize two things. There's the customer selection issue. Who is our customer? Who buys? And then there is the process issue, the journey. How do they buy? So again, uh, you know, the notion of uh, a linking 
your sales behaviors with tasks and strategy begins with in-depth knowledge about the buyer, who they are, why they buy or don't, and many, many companies uh, omit this third part, how they buy, their actual process. So that would be the third uh, uh, key idea uh, that I would cite. And, and the reason why, I mean, it's important to understand, you know, the, I guess the, um, the, the the alignment of the sales and the strategy and the tasks, uh, the sales tasks is, uh, partly because, um, as you said, I mean, it might be good for the salesperson. It might be good for the founder's ego to make a sale, but uh, it might actually be detrimental to the company to make a sale that doesn't really align with the strategy because it could um, bleed resources from the areas where you really need to spend your time and effort and energy and money and effort, you know, everything you can think of. Yeah. And, you know, there's a chapter in my book uh, about this where, in fact, it is a startup uh, that is uh, the example. Uh, and it leads to exactly the um, uh, the sort of things you've uh, outlined, Manny. But, you know, there's also another way to think about this. Uh, and the venture capitalists, or at least the good VCs, uh, understand this. Uh, what you'll see when you look at the data about um, ventures, entrepreneurial ventures in the United States. And this data has been uh, remarkably consistent uh, for decades. Very, very few startups actually ever reach 10 million in sales, and many fewer reach 50 million in sales. And I'm talking about startups that are funded by venture capitalists. Now, again, if you're an entrepreneur, you're free to think whatever you want about, you know, VCs. You know, some people think they're great. Some people think they're vulture capitalists, as they say. That's not the point. The point is these are professional investors. They've been around the uh, party a number of times. So you assume that they're vetting businesses with, um, with some understanding of what it means to grow a business. And yet the data is how few companies reach even 10 million in sales. And what the VCs say, and it's, you know, it's a slogan you'll hear in the industry again and again, they'll always talk about what they call the Bermuda Triangle uh, of a business. And what they're referring to is um, what you see in the data. Many, many businesses grow to a certain point, and then they stall and decline. Now, why is that? And the major reason is what we're talking about. What happens as the business is not purposeful about where they play, where they don't play, whom we sell to, who we don't, is that can take you just so far. But then at the end of the day, the expenses in the back room are killing you trying to serve all these different customers. Your product development is getting fragmented. So what's happening is that the venture is pretty good at serving a lot of different segments, but it's not really good at serving any one. And the essence of strategy is to be able to be really good at certain things that your competitors find it difficult to imitate. And the result is, again, the Bermuda Triangle. So um, important for a whole variety of reasons that are just built in uh, to running a business. This is great. This is great. Uh, so much good stuff here. Um, Frank, now let's 
convert all of this learning into action because here at 2000 books we always say there's no learning without action and uh, a business is in some ways a manifestation of action and uh, not just thinking so let's let's um, let's talk about that uh, give our listeners very specific action items please um three Yes. All right, let's go with the magic number three. three. One we've talked about, but it's so important. Let me just emphasize it briefly again, Manny. Customer selection. That is core to any business strategy in any business, in any industry. I don't care whether you're Facebook or, uh, you know, um, uh, selling uh, cement. Uh, it's a key choice. And it ultimately is what drives um, uh, the ability to link strategy with sales tasks. By the way, notice the issue that many companies have here when you look at sales compensation. Uh, 70% of sales comp plans, according to the uh, data, simply reward salespeople for sales volume, pure and simple. Now, notice what the message is in a compensation plan like that. The message to sales is any sale is a good sale. Doesn't matter if it's high margin, low margin. Doesn't matter if that customer is high cost to serve or low cost to serve. And you can see how uh, the customer selection issue and therefore strategy gets muddied. The second uh, piece of advice I'd give, and, and this is especially true, I think, for entrepreneurs in the 21st century, I think it's very important to understand what the impact of the internet is and is not on sales. Uh, the, um, there's a big misunderstanding here. The impact of the internet is not to replace salespeople. That is a myth. Let me cite a little bit of data that often surprises people. Um, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, if you look at the number of workers in sales occupations in the United States in 1999, all right, that's, you know, uh, uh, 15 plus years ago, according to uh, the Bureau, there were about 12.9 million people in sales occupations. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data in 2014, 15 years later, this is the last year that they, uh, uh, they've reported, we'll get 2015 sometime later this year, the number of people in sales occupations in the U.S. has increased. It hasn't decreased. It's increased by almost 2 million. Mm. Um, and, and by the way, that number reported by the government almost certainly vastly underestimates the real number, because in an increasingly service economy, many people who do business development are not called salespeople for reporting purposes. They're called, uh, you know, associates or, or managing directors or, um, you know, uh, partners, mm -hmm. uh, but they're salespeople. So the Internet is not replacing sales. That is a myth. But the Internet... Um, you know, another data point just to support this, the Internet is, uh, is almost 25 years old. But even after 25 years, less than 10% of retail sales are online, less than 10%. Hmm. So, again, this is not the issue. But the Internet is still a big deal, not because it's replacing salespeople, because it's changing buyer behavior and therefore sales 
tasks. Mm -hmm. Buyers in most industries now can get product, price, and promotion information by their own search. This doesn't replace salespeople, but it does make their job harder and more important that they're adding value during the actual sales encounter. And what I find is a lot of entrepreneurs in particular think they're going to do everything online, and that is just not true. And it's, uh, it's often a very, very big and costly mistake for many uh, entrepreneurs. Hmm. Third piece of advice I have is about people. And two areas in particular where all companies, but especially startups, have huge uh, areas of improvement. One is hiring. Um, the data about hiring, especially in sales, is very, very definitive. <laughs> the correlation between um, uh, the, um, uh, the evaluations people get in their interviews and their actual performance is about 0.2. In other words, about one in five. Um, managers in all companies, but especially founders, vastly overestimate their ability to hire people on the basis of one or two interviews. And what they're really doing is trying to clone themselves. They're hiring in their own image. The key to effective hiring is not only doing interviews, but finding ways to make behavioral assessments about whether this person can actually do our tasks, not other tasks. And the other area of people where there's vast rooms for improvement is in performance reviews, mm -hmm. especially in sales. <clears throat> busy founders and busy sales managers tend to do what I call drive-by reviews. They're brief, they're cursory, they're not really about review, evaluation, and development. They're usually about some form of compensation. Uh, but the single most underutilized lever for improving performance in most companies, in my experience, is getting people to do performance reviews well. And by the way, this is a trainable skill. It is a trainable skill to learn how to do performance reviews. I wish I had uh, trained myself and my people uh, years before we, uh, we eventually did that. So that would be my third area, people, hiring. Don't overestimate your ability to evaluate people on the basis of one or two interviews. The data about this is very definitive. And then secondly, once you hire folks, doing performance reviews well. Got it. This is great. This is great, Frank. Um, now let's uh, shift our focus in some ways and look at a very big picture. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you look back at all these years of teaching and working with businesses and being a business owner, what is that one piece of guidance, one piece of advice you would give to entrepreneurs today? Well, I mean, I've said it in different ways. Uh, you know, I'll, you know, let's quote uh, Sam Walton again. You brought him up. There ain't many customers at headquarters. Um, at the end of the day, uh, business is about customer acquisition and retention. If you do a good job acquiring customers, you've got a shot 
at growing your business, uh, adding jobs, and uh, as a result, adding a lot of social value. But if you're not good at customer acquisition, at the end of the day, you don't have a business. You've got a museum. So, uh, yeah, desk is a dangerous place. There ain't many customers at headquarters. Uh, especially important, I think, for founders. Mm-hmm. Many founders, uh, especially as uh, in the software area, are fundamentally product people. They may like, but many of them, customer contact doesn't come naturally to them. And that's very important. If you don't relish customer contact, you probably shouldn't start a business. Now, notice, I didn't say sales here. I said customer contact. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that is still the most important thing. And whether you're good at sales or not, You've got to maintain customer contact if you're serious about being a potentially successful entrepreneur. Got it. This is great. So, Frank, uh, now let's uh, close the interview by telling our listeners where to find you, where to find the book, and everything that you do. Well, probably the easiest place uh, to find the book is Amazon. Uh, You know, the title of the book is Aligning Strategy and Sales. I certainly hope that everybody... Uh, who uh, listens to this podcast or later downloads it will go right out, uh, buy the book. And if you do buy and read the book, I I want to offer your listeners a a sincere offer. I mean this. If you actually do read the book, I really would appreciate an email and tell me, Frank, here's what I read in your book that makes sense. Here's what I disagree with. And here's why. Uh, What I have found over the years, you know, and I've written now six books and many, many articles, but what I have found is at the end of the day, that is the only way to improve. So get the book. Easiest place to get it is on Amazon, Aligning Strategy and Sales. But if you do read it, you know, if it's going to be more than a doorstopper, give me some feedback, what you agree with, what you disagree with. Great. Uh, I really like that. And they can find you. How can they send you the, what's the, where to find you? Uh, well, probably, you know, you you can always uh, write the review in Amazon. You can get my uh, email address. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how people do this, but they always find a way uh, to get uh, the email address. I did. I, I also have a website, mm-hmm. uh, Uh And, you know, one can always go there. Uh, to um, uh, to give me feedback as well. Great. Well, Frank, thank you very much. This has been a delight, a lot of great learning. I really appreciate the time you took here. Well, my pleasure as well, Manny. Good luck to you uh, as an entrepreneur, and thank you very much for the opportunity to do this. Well, last month was really exciting because I got to talk to a lot of you one-on-one. I got to understand your challenges and your frustrations in your entrepreneurial journey. And a lot of you got back to me after the call saying that you applied the advice you got from me and it helped you out tremendously. And that to me is one of the most rewarding things for me, knowing that I was able to help you move forward. So 
even though my initial plan was to just do this for one month, given the fun I had and given your overwhelming response and request, I have opened up my Thursdays for this month as well. So I'll do this again. I will talk to you, listen to you, answer any and all business questions you may have and take in any suggestions you have for us, for the podcast, for the YouTube channel, for our products. So if you would like to talk to me, just schedule a free 30-minute chat with me at 2000books.com slash discuss or text the word discuss to 44222 and we will get talking, you and I. Now, I'm really excited about this because it will really give me the opportunity to get to know you, understand you, and serve you better. By the way, I want to be doubly clear that this is not a sales call. I will not pitch anything to you, and I hope you won't sell anything to me either, okay? So let's just talk like friends, deal? All right, so I'm only doing this for Thursdays, and there are only four Thursdays this month, so get a time slot before they're all gone. Just head on over to 2000books.com slash discus or text the word discus to 44222 and schedule a time that is convenient for you. And now I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So let's do this. Okay, I have a question for you. How much is your time really worth? I mean, in dollars per hour. Is it worth anything more than $3.33 per hour? If yes, how do you use all the extra time during the day, like the time in the gym or while doing your laundry or running errands or driving or doing grocery or running or walking or doing chores around your home? Because I use my extra time to listen to audiobooks. So if I bought an audiobook for $10 and listened to it for three hours, I paid $3.33 per hour for that knowledge. So if you're making anything more than $3.33 per hour, I think you should be able to invest that money in constantly upgrading your mind. And audiobooks are definitely one of the cheapest investments with the highest ROI, in my opinion. So if you want to try out what I'm saying, you can give Audible a try by signing up for a free trial membership and get any audiobook for free. And if you don't like it, just cancel the trial membership and you won't be charged anything. However, you still get to keep the audiobook for free forever. So pretty good deal, right? And you've got nothing to lose but a free audiobook to gain. So to avail of this offer, just head on over to 2000books.com slash free or text the word audiobooks to 44222. Now that's one word, audiobooks to 44222, and we'll get back to you with the details. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends, go out and live a courageous life.